Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 127 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Monday morning, July 1st. 2019. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, happy Bobby Bonilla Day. <laughs> One million dollars. Oh my gosh. July 1st every year. It's like, if, if, if it weren't bad enough to be a Mets fan, Bobby Bonilla Day is just an annual gut punch. So this is a tough day for all you New York sports fans. Oh my, and on, on every, well, not all New York sports fans, because the Yankees, yeah, cause the Yankees had themselves a well. weekend in London. But, yeah, they did. But, I mean, that wasn't baseball, but it was a weekend. But, I mean... <laughs> The, the, as bad as the Mets are playing right now, the, the July 1st gut punch. It, if you don't know the story, really quickly, Bobby Bonilla, who in typical Mets fashion, the Mets acquired on the tail end of his career. He was great for the Pirates. He was great for the Pirates. He actually never had an especially good year. for. He had like one halfway good year for the Mets and then was all downhill. So in 2001, I want to say, the Mets entered into this bizarre deferred compensation deal with Benia, where instead of paying him the five-point-something million dollars he was owed, they agreed that starting in, I think, probably 2009 or 2008, they'd pay him like one-point-some-odd million dollars every year um, until 2029. Right, so so with like eight percent interest, five point nine million dollars turns into like twenty, twenty five, twenty six, twenty eight million dollars. So there have been multiple years where the highest paid outfielder on the New York Mets was Bobby Bonilla, who had been retired for like ten years, and here we are in twenty nineteen, and it's Bobby Bonilla Day, and there goes another one point you know two million dollars to a guy whose last good year was like nineteen ninety three. I'm looking at his career stats right now, and like. The drop-off as soon as he gets to the Mets is hilarious. Was 93 his last good year? Am I remembering right? Um, no, he actually had one kind of decent – how you judge these things. We had a good year in 95 when <laughs> he right. came back and was part of the year with New York. Anyways. Ugh, ugh. Bobby, so so it, it's not if it weren't bad enough that the Mets just finished a, a streak where they lost seven games in a row, where in five of those games they blew multiple run leads in the eighth inning or later, where they have more blown saves as a team than saves. The only team in the majors for which that's true. Here, July first, it's Bobby. Happy Bobby Bonilla Day, Bobby. Oh, I, you think he should share some of that money with the other Bobbies, but I won't insist on it. We'll talk more sports ball <laughs> during the frivolity. I'm sorry, I, just, I can't resist. July 1st is like the is the pinnacle of pathetic Mets fandom every year. Well, as you know, one of the things I love about our show is getting you riled up, and uh, we've got more insults to New York sportsdom coming, coming. in yes. the frivolity yes. it's, it's Right. Monday may be a crappy day for the Mets, but Sunday was a pretty crappy day for the Knicks. It was a great day for Julius Randle. Um <laughs> <laughs> you know that it, it, I want Happy Bobby Bonilla Day to be our podcast title. Oh, that is good. But a that great day for Julius Randall is actually not <laughs> it, not bad. Or at least it was a great day for Julius. <laughs> at least Randall. it was a great day for Julius Randall. <laughs> so we have some national security law stuff to talk about. Yeah, no, we no do. one big ticket item. We're gonna we're gonna touch base with. But a sustaining member. member who we thought had left us. Oh, he came back. Has made, has, has returned. Abdurrahman Ahmed Al Sheikh, better known to our listeners as the guy from Doe v. Mattis. Doe versus Mattis is back. I we, can't believe this. In sort of an echo way, not in not in a very sort of exciting sort of like, hey, there's another detention case, but rather just uh, some confirmation of things I think we, we already, already knew. knew. Um, so we'll talk about a a, a sort of echo from Doe v. Mattis. We'll echo. talk about an echo, I guess, uh, sort of a more concrete echo in the border litigation, the Sierra Club decision. We have a permanent injunction now as opposed to a preliminary injunction. Right, and, you know, shorthand there, it's it's more of the same, but it, you know, the same is significant. Indeed. So we'll check in with Sierra Club. 
some notes on the the denouement of the Supreme Court's uh, October twenty eighteen term finally wrapped up. For outsiders, they're like October term, right? Well, you know, it's all it's always the October term, except for special summer stuff, which they haven't done since nineteen forty two. Been a while. Um, um, ex parte Karen? Yeah, yeah. Stained. All right. I guess. I guess they um, stained. Be it's been a while. It's oh. been a while. You know, I like that song. Me too. I do. I do. I don't. Uh, listeners disdained have other good songs because it's been a while is it's a little hokey maybe in the way that a lot of sort of uh i guess it was a 90s song wasn't yeah, it? yeah i feel like stan had one other big song i bet I remember- they have more than one good song and when when somebody tells me this i guess you're gonna do it now I'm as googling. i see you reach for the phone pull out the google google that for me would you um yeah so besides that we'll talk about uh, oh outside i'm on the outside I'm broken in. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. They Been have two songs. Been a while's good. Two songs. Um, <laughs> so there you go. Two hit. Wonders. By the way, just to, to date us, um, it's been a while. Two thousand one. Two thousand one. Yeah. Not a ninety song. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. We'll talk about Department of Commerce versus New York, uh, which is indeed the census decision. Not because the census, although it's yeah, important. I put but decision in quotation marks. You do? Yes. <laughs> okay, we'll talk about that. Um, there's some. I, I, so, so speaking of getting me riled up, I have some issues with some of the things the Supreme Court did last week. Well, that doesn't surprise me. I know, right? Slightest. Um, news flash. News Steve flash. is riled about something a court did. What? <laughs> something is wrong on the internet. But this one's pertinent for us because we have a recurring theme on the show of the the challenging questions that arise when courts have to consider to what extent do they have to accept stated executive branch reasons for actions. This matters in other contexts that are more pertinent for the show than the census case, but it came up in a big way. There's a pretext ruling mm-hmm. in uh, that case, and to some people, a uh, controversial one. one. Yeah, well, definitely controversial on both sides. Um, we'll check in with the crypto wars very briefly. There was a little mini flurry of news about whether or not that topic is about to, the going dark topic, the crypto wars topic is about to reheat. I don't think it is, but maybe. Um, we'll touch base with another recurring storyline that we check in with from time to time. That's whether and to what extent uh, phone metadata collection will continue uh, under the uh, under the USA Freedom Act model. And um, what else we got? Uh, something about the DMZ, Steve? So, um, do you know in, um, um, what movie is it? Die Another Day? Uh, wait, yeah, die, no, no, not Die Another Day. It's like Die Hard 15 or something? No, it is Die Another Day. You know when um, James Bond is exchanged for Zhao and they walk across the, the Armistice oh, Bridge? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, from yeah. The, across the DMZ? After he does the, uh, gets ice drowned that's for right, a that's while. Right. Yeah. So, so tr- you know, President Trump, man, what a, what a powerful. Oh, you see some parallels what there? What a powerful moment. Daniel, he, he Daniel Craig the can play Donald Trump. <laughs> well, actually, it was Pierce Brosnan. Oh, was it? Oh, was. yeah, yeah, you're right. You're it was right. the last hey, Pierce Brosnan Bond movie. I, I'm kind of a I'm kind of a Pierce Brosnan fan. Um, I kind of in general. Enjoy, or in, in, in general, yeah, yeah. Oh. I like his work. Yeah. Um, and speaking of Bond, uh, Twitter revealed yesterday some images of their beginning filming for the 25th Bond film. Ooh, Bond so 25. He was, he was seen in London. Um, at, at you know, he pulls up in, in his snazzy car. It was so sweet seeing that. I, feel so like I think it's, it's the last Daniel Craig Bond. Film. I would love to see Saturday Night Live do a do a sort of a Sean bring bring Sean Connery in to do like a Bond Bond fifty seven. He's eighty eight and he's still going. <laughs> <laughs> They've got too much, uh, you know, uh, real stuff to be in the of, middle. That's true. Um, all right. So, oh, by oh. the way, I didn't watch this weekend, and I don't know if they're doing even doing. I guess it's summertime, so they're not doing shows right now, right? So they couldn't yeah. do a send-up of the Democratic debates. Oh, gosh. And they couldn't do a send-up of, of what's-her-face, um, 
Mary, Marie uh, Williamson. Is that her name? Who, I, who's the new ager? Um, I'm, I'm I don't know. She's, I, 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 I stopped counting. You know what 20, I'm talking yes, about, Yes, but right? I stopped yeah. counting the 20 presidential candidates. Uh, that was a real gift to Twitter and to memehood, I got to say. Some I saw the, a bumper sticker today that says, Democrat 2020. <laughs> that about sums which, it up. Which is um, about where I am right now. Um, yeah, well, what about, uh, did you did you actually see the quote where she they asked her? Like, I did not you? watch the debates. I did not. No, I did you not, didn't see I didn't any of the follow-up? I didn't read coverage of the Is this like a debates? rare instance where I spotted something on Twitter? That, I just, I just, I couldn't bring myself to do okay, it. Okay, so I, they I, asked her, busy. they asked her, like, what would your first act as president be? And uh-huh. she says, um, in this, like, unusual style she's got, she says, kind of with this dramatic air about her, I would call up the prime minister of New Zealand and I would say, and I'm, and I, I kid you not. This she says almost exactly this. Girlfriend, you were on. You said that New Zealand's going to be the best place for children. America's going to fight you on that. Like we're going to be the best place. It was the most bizarre possible thing someone could say their first act as president would be. I'm I going think. after New Zealand. And we're coming for you, Kiwis. <laughs> All right. So enough politics and commentary. I kind of well, butchered for that the story. Um, let's jump in with our... Oh, yeah, and frivolity. So, oh, so yeah. a quick note on frivolity. So we actually, um, per our discussions on a couple of prior episodes, we want to do some like classic Star Trek The Next Generation breakdowns, but we want you guys to be ready for it. So consider this your formal notification that our next episode, which is going to be in two weeks, we're going to be discussing the season seven episode, The Pegasus. That's a great episode. This is going to be a lot of fun. We're going to have a whole conversation about the Treaty of Algernon and why the Federation, you know, does so much. Why the Federation seems so committed to this treaty thing. Mm, Treaty compliance. Obedience and duty themes for Listen, if I if I had a, you know, matter cloak, a, a, a phased cloaking device that allowed me to go through matter, I might say Treaty of Algernon, Treaty of Schmalgernon. <laughs> Flowers for Algernon. Yeah. All right. Um, so Alger- maybe, oh wait, is it Algeron? It might be Algeron and Flowers for Algernon. I think it's, I think well, 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 when we rewatch it, we'll figure it out. That's pretty awesome. Um, I can't quite remember. Is Flowers for Algernon the one where uh, the the guy's getting treatments that make him progressively smarter? Is Do you recall this? I do not remember. Did, that sounds they never made you familiar. Read this. It was really good. I'm going to have to look that up. Um, and by the way, yes, I do realize it was Marianne Williamson is the, uh, uh-huh. the Democratic candidate there who's the sort of uh, uh, crystals and auras person who had the crazy comment about calling New Zealand. All right. So um, <laughs> I, I really love that story so much. Um, Dovey Mattis. It's back. Why is it back, Steve? We've um, missed you, Dovey Yes, Mattis. it is the Treaty of Algeron. Algeron. Not Algernon. Right. Okay. Um, thank you, Star Trek Wiki. Um <laughs> Why is Dover Mattis back? So I had not been paying any attention to this. Perhaps I should have been. Um, the We've talked before about the Mafia Clinic, the Media Freedom Information Accountability Clinic at Yale Law School. What, um, a, what, a, what a great acronym. Indeed. Yeah. Dave Schultz, um, my buddy. Um, and they had been litigating for some time, I think largely under the radar, um, trying to unseal the redacted parts of the D.C. Circuit's opinion. If everyone remembers, you know, what, last summer? Um, I can't remember anything anymore. Um, the D.C. Circuit had issued this big ruling about why the government could not transfer dough to either country A or country B. 
Um, right, and we talked at length about how that was based on a construction of the Supreme Court's decisions in Valentine and Munaf, blah, blah, blah. This, they were litigating, wasn't it, on behalf of Charlie Savage in the New York yep. Times? Yep, and so this was on behalf of Charlie Savage in the New York Times, and it was basically an effort to unseal, among other things, the identities of country A and country B. Which were no secrets which to Which were any no of secrets us. to anybody. <laughs> uh, right, we all knew that the two countries at issue were Saudi Arabia and Iraq, and indeed, in context, it's pretty clear which is which. Um, but, you know, um, all the more reason to actually have this be official on the record. So on Friday morning, the D.C. Circuit reissued the opinion in Doe versus Mattis. Take that, citation hounds. Um, but this time with a whole lot of the earlier redactions lifted. So and there's also, you know, now clarity about the name, which had yep. also already been in the media. Yep. which You mentioned earlier the fact that the place he ultimately was trans- transferred to was uh, Bahrain. Um, which we also knew. Which we also yeah. So, <laughs> so it it was. There's it was, knowing, and then there's knowing. It was fun to see it again. It was not terribly uh, right. Interesting I panicked. I mean, when, it, when I when I got that little email from the DC Circuit, like you know, yeah. opinion reissued in Doe versus Mads, I was like, ah! okay. So now this is interesting. Um, is this all an example of the system working right in its due time? Or do you take it as somehow an example of it previously having worked wrong? Because I'm more in the former camp. I think that it was right to withhold these details as a formal matter while diplomatic negotiations were going on. And the fact that it then comes out later when it no longer matters, I think it's perfectly fine and, and illustrate. Um, or, or rather, it's my point. I think it's support from the fact that DOJ, as I understand it, did not oppose yeah. this uh, this unsealing. This wasn't some deal where the government's like trying to keep the secret still for no good reason. They didn't oppose this. So I guess I'm I'm my view is is perhaps not surprisingly a little more equivocal than yours, although maybe not as 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 diametrically opposed as you might expect. Right, which is um, it's not that I have any problem with the government asserting valid need for secrecy in diplomatic negotiations. That makes perfect sense to me. It's that it was on the record in the district court that it was Saudi Arabia. And it shouldn't have been. Like, that was a boo-boo. Um, but, like, this wasn't just, you know, speculation by the media. We knew it because it was on the bloody record. And I just, I get worried about a scenario where courts are not allowed to say out loud things that are not just known the world around, but actually part of the actual record in the litigation. It, when, so I don't recall the details of whether and yeah. how it came out on the record, but you say it was it was so an if, accident? If, if memory serves, there was an accidental slip, like either one of the transcripts was released that should have been sealed, or like, yeah. but the, at some point, I think it was Judge Chutkin, right, the district judge, who identified country B as Saudi Arabia. Um, and it's just like, from that point on, like I understand that you know that whoever was responsible shouldn't have happened, but I, my only concern is about pretending it didn't happen, right? That's yeah. like because I get worried about like a world where we all know something to be true, but the government can actually say it's not actually true because it's not part of the record. Like that's my concern. I, I get that. I, I really do. I also think though that it is so commonplace in litigation in general because like it happens in discovery all the time where there's a disclosure of a privileged document. Yep. This actually happened in my own practice. Um, the other side in a huge case produced a smoking hot document that I found. <laughs> that they didn't I, need to? Oh, and, it was, and you know, when you're doing document <laughs> review and you actually find a smoking right. gun document. It's like, it's like your, your life is made. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is a, sadly, it's a very exciting moment. 
And uh, then later on, it was like, oh, no, 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 no. That is the other side said, like, that was a complete screw up. Our said, part clawed it back. And it was clawed back. And we absolutely, I personally had to absolutely proceed as if I'd never seen it, didn't know it, even though I knew exactly what it was. I couldn't, you know, that, that sort of thing is part of practice. Yeah, I guess I just, I would draw a distinction between private litigation between private parties and, you know, information relating to the, you know, the liberties of U.S. citizens. But I, I don't, I don't think it's so obvious as to be beyond per adventure. I mean, like, my, my point is just, that I have a little bit of a qualm just because I thought it was a little surreal that we spent the whole, in real time, we're analyzing what's happening in the district court in the D.C. Circuit where everyone understands that we know which countries we're talking about and yet we're indulging the yeah. fiction that we don't. Yeah, that, there, I, get, I get the uh, cognitive dissonance in that. Um, anyway, but yeah. say la vie. So, so yeah. Doe versus Mattis, welcome back. And, and go away. Yeah, I guess maybe, you know, at some point, surely some enterprising journalist is going to go over to Bahrain, try yeah. to find this guy, try to find out, like, so what's, up? So what's happening now? Like, is right. this person, is this person, like, in custody there? Is this person, you know, flipping burgers? What is this guy's How's it really story? with your parents, who apparently didn't seem to be that worried when you were in U.S. custody? As is he, is he even still there? Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, moving on. Border wall litigation. Now, when the border wall story and the declaration of national emergency flared up, we spent a lot of time in this show reviewing the ins and outs of the various statutory authorities that Trump ultimately invoked. We're not going to rehash that here. Uh, we're checking in on one of the many lawsuits that was filed. This is one that's out in California. This is this is the Sierra Club litigation, which obviously that name suggests is a sort of a third party interest kind of litigation as opposed to the cases that we predicted early on would have more staying power and more direct prospects for surviving a standing challenge that is uh, landowners whose lands being appropriated but so far Sierra Club has uh, withstood challenges to their standing they had already gotten a uh, preliminary injunction that included an analysis from Judge Gilliam finding that uh, a particular slice of the many different pots of money that Trump is trying to move around that is um, the section 284 uh, counter narcotics funds, and Section 2808 military construction funding mechanisms, that the uh, effort to move that money around for this purpose was a violation of both the statute and, Judge Gilliam went further and said, and also contravenes broader separation of powers principles since Congress had decided not to appropriate money for this purpose. In our episode 123, Steve, you and I kind of rehashed this. I can't recall if we disagreed on this. I, I know that I expressed... Uh, disagreement on the separation of powers aspect of the ruling, but thought that the statutory analysis was plausible within reasonable and, bounds. And I guess I was I was with you on the statutory analysis, and I thought it was a closer call on the separation of powers discussion. Right. Uh, I think it's fair to say that nothing that nothing's changed that requires further discussion with the issuance of the, the permanent injunction here. Um, there are a few details as to what exactly has been enjoined that's changed, but nothing I think is interesting enough to talk about. I think all that's really happened here of great significance is it just gets us closer to the moment when we're going to get some further judicial review of this particular rule. Well, because one of the things that Judge Gilliam did, I think entirely to his credit, um, is to 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 um, avoid any uncertainty about the appealability of this order. I, I actually think it would have been appealable anyway under um, 28 U.S.C. 1292-A1. But just in case there's any shadow of a doubt, he actually certified the order for appellate review um, under Rule 54B of the Rule yeah. of Civil Procedure, which means there's now literally no argument. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. It sounds like a small ball thing. Just think about the military commission context where stuff just grinds <laughs> along so slowly. And, and here, we're still fighting over what's appealable. And here you see a judge 
understanding that what they've done is definitely going to be reviewed by yep. someone else eventually, that it is an issue of importance. It needs to get resolved soon. And, and, and so it does what, what he can to speed to, that along. And there's been other litigation against the Trump administration in the Ninth Circuit where district judges have been a little more obstinate yeah. um, and, where the, and where that's caused real mischief. Like the, the, the massive Juliana climate change case in Oregon, um, there's been some – I mean, I don't I, – I understand what Judge Aiken is doing, but she has been a little um, reluctant um, to sort of allow the government easy access to appeals. Um, I think on the merits, I can defend each of her rulings to that effect. But I think optically, it's created a lot of pressure on, you know, the appellate courts to to sort of to stay her rulings, to sort of nudge her to certify these things for appeal. So I think we both agree on a an ideologically neutral yes. and partisan neutral principle that in general, when judges at the district court level are grappling with issues of significant national import that are clearly going to yes. go to the circuits and perhaps beyond. They should not do anything to sort of interfere with the ability of whoever's on the wrong side of that decision to expeditiously yeah, go whichever to whichever way it's going. Now, I will actually, I, I'm sorry to get in the Fed court suites for a second. I would draw a distinction between that relationship at the district and circuit level and circuits versus the Supreme Court because of the very different nature of the Supreme Court's authority versus the circuit court's Absolutely. authority. Absolutely. No, it's not the same thing at right. all. Okay. Okay, um, cool. But, at least we agree on that. Even if we and don't by the way, just the hey, for the non-lawyers for whom that was a lot of legal speak, I mean, what it basically boils down to is in most civil litigation in the federal courts, um, and indeed most criminal litigation, there's a very strong presumption against what are called interlocutory appeals. Um, and an interlocutory appeal is basically a fancy word for an appeal before the case is over. Right. Um, and the the strong presumption against interlocutory appeals reflects a whole bunch of considerations. Um, one about sort of trusting the trial judge. One about not tilting the litigation toward whichever party has more resources. One about you know appellate courts not wanting to decide cases on sort of partially developed records. But there are exceptions. Um, and so the tricky part is sort of figuring out when we have a a, a, a correct or, or appropriate case for one of the exceptions. I'm with I'm with Bobby on these injunctions at least. I think interlocutory review makes a lot of sense, and I think it's not inconsistent with the regime Congress has created. We got to find something to disagree about. So let's turn to the Supreme Court. Hey, <laughs> uh, so SCOTUS finally wrapped up, uh. and they're all on vacation. They're scattered to the four winds, no doubt. Mostly in like Austria or some delightful Italy, deal like, like Salzburg. Como. Yeah. <laughs> hey, if you're listening, if you're in Salzburg and you're listening, uh, you're, we will happily yeah, come record a live. Totally. If, you, if you can get us over there. Um, oh, by the way, I just got an, an ESPN alert. Oh, Nick's, oh. Nick's agreed a two year, $21 million deal with Reggie Bullock. <laughs> Who? <laughs> It's like Major League. I haven't heard of half these guys. That's... And the ones I have heard of are over the hill. Oh this God. guy here is dead. <laughs> Cross him <laughs> off, then. All right, we'll, we'll talk. We we'll get will there. say more about All the right. Knicks. So, SCOTUS. So, the Supreme Court had, um, it wrapped up its its last decision day was Thursday. It also had the orders from the so-called cleanup conference on Friday. And then the justices left for the summer. They actually won't meet again um, in conference until October 1st. It's right. a good, good job. Good work if you can get it. Okay, so would you, is it fair to say there's there are actually a lot of interesting opinions that a dropped A lot of since, interesting things that happened yeah, yeah, the, since the, our last The recording. Blood Draw Fourth Amendment case was interesting. Um, I think... The Blood, Blood Draw Fourth Amendment case was preposterous. So interesting and and interesting and preposterous. Is good, good and terrible? Oh, is that sort of a... Good, good and terrible. You like there, you go. okay. there you go. Okay. Guys, Bobby just won. <laughs> that, we're done. Um, just this... Uh, hey, true... Uh, what, yeah. Dear you, listeners, what's tell that us from? what movie is it from. And I'll don't say, I'll just, don't Google it. You gotta actually know it. 
That boy's good. Good and terrible. Well, now, now, okay, now you made it easy. Did I? Just we'll throw, in, throw in some Rocky Marciano while you're at it. I'm just saying, I don't know if people are going to... I mean, good and terrible out of context. I don't know if people are I know. Gonna, I thought that was pretty good. I'm yeah. proud of that. I'm very proud of you. Thank you. Because you. you know that's my favorite movie of all time. I'm, I'm basking. Yeah. I'm basking. Yeah, well. Okay, so... Just let, just let your soul glow, Bobby. Oh, very good. Okay, so speaking of good and terrible, um, we've got some rulings, but Department of Commerce, the census case. Explain, yeah. How does... First... Lay out that we don't need to go into too much detail. Although I got I got to tell you the story of trying to process that in real time on a conference call with like okay, every so you're single doing CNN your person. CNN legal advisor right. thing. So the, so so the the fourth amendment case comes first. We were ready for that. I wasn't at all expecting what the court did, but it wasn't like that bizarre. I mean, right. like t- it was, t- tell real quick so people who don't follow this, like what is ex- core holding there? So the fourth amendment case, the Supreme Court held five to four um, that. Um, it is not a violation of the Fourth Amendment for law enforcement officers who have a reasonable suspicion that a unconscious driver in a car is drunk um, <laughs> to take a bl- to, to to basically uh, perform a blood alcohol test yep. without their consent, right? Um, and without a warrant. And without a warrant. Um, the 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 pro- I have multiple problems with the decision, but the biggest one is the one that Justice Gorsuch pointed out in his dissent because it was actually it was five four with Breyer. Yeah, um, on the other side, yeah. picking um, up, d- beginning to develop this theme of like, hey, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch often disagreeing. Well, on which some people find interesting. Well, I don't think it's that shocking. I mean, they disagree on like criminal, certain criminal. But so Gorsuch was. I mean, uh, I think the disagreement's overstated, but that's okay. Um, so Gorsuch's dissent, which I completely agree with, is this is not the question we granted cert to resolve, right? <laughs> like the granted the the Wisconsin. I think it was Wisconsin. Wisconsin has a statute that says all drivers by dint of operating a motor vehicle in the state of Wisconsin formally consent to blood alcohol tests. Um, and therefore, they waive right. They're just by by driving a car in Wisconsin, you are waiving your right to uh, to a warrant. You're waiving your Fourth Amendment right in that context. And the question the court granted her to decide in this case, Mitchell versus Wisconsin, is um, is that a violation of the Fourth Amendment? And said they're like, eh, we'll decide something else. Um, so I you know I have problems on the merits, but I have bigger problems with the court sort of reaching out to decide a question that wasn't presented. So super interesting case, but it gets overshadowed for good reason by, by the next two. So next yeah. we got partisan gerrymandering, um, and the partisan gerrymandering case, from the perspective of me, the CNN analyst, was super straightforward. It was five four. It was one of the scenarios we had prepared for. I think it was. I, I mean. I'm with Justice Kagan. I think it's wrong. I think it's sad. But, you know, it was yeah. it was not complicated. This continues the Supreme Court's longstanding reluctance to try to identify a judi- judicially manageable standard. Well, continues is a little underselling it. I mean, you know, the I mean, the court had famously split 4-4 on whether they could find a standard. And Justice Kennedy had sort of hung out in the middle and said, yeah. maybe it, one day. Yeah, if you if you can present me with a right. objective test, I don't know if it can be done. And now that Political we have scientists Kav- leapt into the, right. the breach to try to do it. And now we have Kavanaugh and said, Kennedy, the court it's like nope, never, right? So this, I mean, this was the categorical door. But hadn't, hadn't the prior term? Hadn't Kennedy also passed on? Wasn't there a case in the prior term? Yeah, but the court ducked, the, the court ducked it on standing, right? In right. Gill versus Whitford. So, right. so no, I mean, yes, Kennedy had not clearly. Kennedy had not been convinced, right? But there's a difference between leaving the door open and closing it forever, which the well, court well, did, or closing it for the time being. Well. Okay, until, right, closing it for as long as, as Rucho versus Common Cause is on the books. Right. All right, then there was the census case. And I got to tell you, trying to process that case in real time was a cluster and a half. Oh. <laughs> um, because there are like seven different opinions. There are three different majorities. Yeah, and, and when, you know, you can always, 
So for those who don't do this a lot, one of one of the ways that when you need to quickly process these things is to, you know, you go to the syllabus where the it, it comes with this pre-baked kind of summary, and then you can look down to see, okay, who's got the majority opinion, who's writing the opinion for the court, and, and in split cases, you'll often get this business where it says, you know, Chief Justice Roberts wrote the opinion for the court as two parts, one, two, three, A, four, B, and five, C, and then you have to start flipping back and forth to figure well, and, out. And you, see, and you see, like, Justice Thomas concurred in part, sentence in part, Justice Sotomayor Concurrent and part yeah. part. You're like, uh oh. It's like a logic game. Hey, there's a reason the LSAT has a logic games component. You gotta, you gotta map some stuff out quickly and determine the logical. And listen, and if you had time to sort of sit down, you could be like, all right, so part one has these justices on this side. These, like, you could do it, right? Yeah. But trying to do it like immediately with people trying to actually go live on air to talk about it, that was awkward. Um, so in a nutshell, right, one five four majority held that in the abstract it's permissible to ask a citizenship question on the census. But a completely different 5-4 majority, say for Chief Justice Roberts, held that in this particular case, um, the the actual justification that Secretary Ross had provided was, in Chief Justice Roberts' words, contrived, um, and that there was therefore reason to doubt that this was actually a legitimate exercise of administrative power. But rather than strike the question, we're going to remand it to the agency. We're going to give them another shot at it. Even though, now mind you, now part of why this is a remarkable denouement is because um, the government had been insisting, there had been all this 11th hour drama in this case because there had been these, you know, newly discovered or at least, you know, allegedly newly discovered facts about the true reasons why the government wants to ask this question on the census. Um, and the, and, and the, the challengers had basically said, we want more time. Like, let's, you know, let's not rush to judgment. Let's actually see if these new facts actually change anything. And the government's response had been, well, no, no, no. June 30th is the make or break yeah, they deadline. Kind of, like, they kind of hoisted themselves, didn't they? Well, that's the thing. So June 30th is our make or break deadline. They had gotten cert before judgment on the, just, on the, on the ground that this had to be yeah. resolved by the end of the October 2018 term. And now the administration's saying like, oh, whoa, whoa. Well, so we President Trump, time. right? So Trump tweeted. So so the so I think what the Chief Justice was doing was killing it quietly. Yeah. Oh right? no, no it it's, a, it's another classic Chief Justice Roberts right. kind of indirection. Like, like, I'm not striking move. it down, but I'm creating circumstances where there's no way you're gonna be able to run the traps in time. Exactly. But President Trump, not to be thwarted, right, tweeted on on Thursday afternoon, right after the ruling, yeah. right? Um, I've asked the lawyers to figure out how we can delay the census. Right, So, which raises the interesting question. And we'll get to the pretext stuff in a second, yeah. but just to run the traps on this. Um, so I think you can certainly argue the Constitution does not brook Un, you know, too much delay on this. That the census has to be run. Within so I, a I, I, I ran this down. So I ran this down for CNN. So um, the Constitution requires a census sometime in 2020. Okay. Um, there's a federal statute that requires the census in April, um, wow. and there are regulations that further circumscribe the timing of the pre preparatory work and blah blah blah. So could we could we get into a mandamus? Let's assume Congress is not yeah. going to intervene to give them more time, which yeah. there's no way the House is going to cooperate. So that yeah. ain't going to happen. So could we find ourselves in whatever February or March, and the Commerce Department and the Bureau is slow rolling things, and you get a mandamus type of litigation to try to force them to proceed without further delay? Well, I mean, I don't. I, so I, I don't think. I think the question is whether the lawyers are actually going to tell the president, are going to go back to the president and say, so well, there's nothing, "This can't be done." Yeah. Um, and and that, yeah, and, like take, do, go blame the courts, milk it for some politics, right. and just move but, on. Right. Because here's the other thing: is that wholly apart from the New York case, which is the one the Supreme Court decided on Thursday, there's this Maryland case, which is raising a wholly different challenge about equal protection. Um, that's not part of the New York case. The Solicitor General, at the very last minute 
had asked the court to decide the equal protection question, which, by the way, I thought was preposterous. Um, But the court didn't. And so even if somehow they were able to sort of rerun the trap super quickly. They could get back in this box right away. Through through a different challenge, right? Because all that the Supreme Court resolved on Thursday is that it wouldn't violate the APA or the enumeration clause to put a citizenship question properly on the census. Didn't say a word about equal protection. Yeah, I I guess it's it's hard for me to... I'm a little skeptical of that argument, to put, to put it mildly, compared to the APA argument, which I think was actually a very good argument here. Right. So let's go back to that. Let's get to the – this is where it begins to tie in more directly to national security because ah. because the doctrinal parsing, it it's an example of something we've talked about a ton on this show, which is when can the court second guess and say, you know, government, executive branch, you claim you took action X for reason Y. We actually, But, but right. everybody knows it's not really reason Y. And although normally we don't get into the business of second guessing, sometimes you're so obvious about it, you force our hands. Right. So, Is that a fair summary of Robert's opinion? 100%. Oh, my gosh. I mean, yeah. I think – so So um, Leah Littman wrote this great piece, I think, in the LA Times. I don't know how she did it. It was, it was posted like 45 minutes after the opinion came out, <laughs> which basically said like what is remarkable about the census case is, you know, the chief justice, who is no friend, right, of, the, of, of these kinds of claims, saying this smelled so bad hey. – he, he said basically like that that pitch was a strike and I'm calling it a strike right like so so I, I, I um, you know the our friends um, Quinta Quinta Jurisdic and, and and Ben Withers, right have this whole line malevolence tempered by incompetence and boy is this not an example of the incompetence coming home to roost right for, I mean for the administration because yeah. had they done it right like had they had they just created a better record had they not made it so transparent that the reason why they wanted to ask a citizenship question was you know for partisan political gain to minimize the political power of non-white Democratic voters, um, I think they would have succeeded. And, you know, I mean, I th- the Chief Justice literally says in part three of the opinion, yes, it is permissible to ask in the abstract about like, citizenship. Well, and, and for those who don't follow this topic, like for a long time, a lot of censuses have included, had included that question. Until 1950. Re- yeah, but we had a long time before that. No, where no, it was I know. On there. I know. So I, just, so I, I don't think, it, I think it's perfectly clear you can ask it uh, in the abstract. The question is, what's going on here? The Administrative Procedures Act requires reasons for uh, agency decisions. Let me read from Robert's opinion. Quote, the reasoned explanation requirement of administrative law, after all, is meant to ensure that agencies offer genuine justifications for important decisions, reasons that can be scrutinized by courts and the interested public. Accepting contrived reasons would defeat the purpose of the enterprise. If judicial review is to be more than an empty ritual, it must demand something better than the explanation offered for the action taken in this case, which he later on, quote, characterizes as, quote, more of a distraction, close quote, than an explanation. So uh, I actually, I kind of like what I saw here. Yeah, I mean, I, so there are, there's a lot about Justice Breyer's opinion that I actually find more compelling. Like, I think I think the chief created a little bit of a trap for himself but by saying all these things. I mean, it's very much like his decision in NFIB versus Sibelius, the oh, absolutely case, like where that. he throws meat to the conservatives, right? For whatever reason, he feels the need, right, to actually say, no, 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 I'm with you on a lot of this stuff, right? But I, I get off the train one stop before you do. 
And I think that opens himself, I think that opens him up to a critique from Justice Thomas that had he just joined with the Breyer analysis, he wouldn't have been open to, right? Because Thomas says, how can you believe all of the things you believe about the propriety of this question in the abstract, the general proposition that we don't look behind the administrative record, the specific proposition that in this case, the court shouldn't have gone past the administrative record and still strike this action down, that sets a crazy precedent. Whereas Breyer says, no, 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 the precedent here is based on the totality of the circumstances, right, when looking at how this litigation proceeded. So I actually don't think there's anything inconsistent with what he's done here. He's It's a bet he's made. I'm not, saying, no, I'm not yeah. saying it's inconsistent. I'm saying, I'm saying it opens him up to sort of, you know, how is a future court supposed to pull a John Roberts, right? How is a future court supposed to look like? DACA is a great example, right? The Supreme Court granted the government's three pending petitions in the DACA cases on Friday, um, presumably because it was waiting for the census case. And in DACA, let's just remind everyone, DACA is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. This is basically the Obama-era program that um, undocumented children of undocumented yeah. immigrants who came to the United States when they were children. So-called dreamers. Dreamers, right? Um, so by executive order, you can't give them that much status, but you can promise not to do so. Right, you can uh, d- discretion in enforcement. Right. Um, so the, the lower courts have uniformly held to date that the Trump administration's rescission of DACA was unlawful, partly because it was pretextual, right? Partly because the proffered reason for doing it, that DACA itself was unlawful, was false, right? That, that the administration had made up a justification. Right. Um, I don't know, like, I don't know reading Chief Justice Roberts' opinion whether DACA is another census case or whether it's a more traditional administrative law case. Why, why isn't it enough to say that what Roberts is standing for here, what the court majority thus produced, was a, was a reinforcement of the rule that agencies can't lie about their reasons mm-hmm. and will ding you for that, whatever the underlying authority to take the action would have been, even if you could have done it in yeah. the abstract and you, you could even have had the bad motive, but if you also had the good motives, all that. But if your one stated justification is X and it becomes clear and indisputable from the record that X was a lie, then you're going to get dinged for that. Now do the travel ban. Right. No. Well, that's why this is interesting for all of our topics that because, uh, because are more directly I, on Because point by that us. logic, I mean, the I, my gut reaction reading part five of the Chief's majority opinion is that that's the opinion he should have written last year. So I'm sure he would say that I know. the fact patterns a, are right, different. There was there was a far more compelling administrative right. record, but that whole record was pretextual. Like this is the the problem is how do you separate out a case where there's one bald faced lie that is clearly pretextual versus the entire record is pretextual because that's the travel ban, right? The travel ban was the government scurrying to come up with neutral, defensible justifications. Yeah. Isn't that where the policy. remand comes in here? That the remand is opening the door to follow the travel ban model. I guess. But so, I mean, I just... he's And so I'm not saying this is a good or a bad thing, yeah. but what descriptively what he seems to be endorsing and across the two cases is a model in which, you know, A, you, you can't have an unsupported outright lie. Uh, if you do go back and do your due diligence and, and produce a plausible uh, non-false record, or well, I guess you're saying like the whole, the whole effort to create the record is a falsity. I kind of see what you're saying. He's clearly not saying that you get to second guess as well. He's right. saying that if you if you do the things, if you articulate the proper reasons, and you actually build a record to support that, at that point, the courts are going to get out of the way. And, and that's this is exactly problem, the rule that right, follows is, So, So the problem is not the lie. The problem is the incompetence in papering over the lie. And, right. and I'm... I'm deeply wary of a world where lying is fine as long as you create enough of a track record to sort of, 
you know, dissipate the taint of the lie. There's the there's the the dilemma, right? And so I'm sure it's fair to say. Hence that, why I'm well, more sympathetic to Breyer. Oh no, indeed. Um, and for Roberts, part of what's obviously going on is, unlike Breyer, much greater relu- much greater reluctance about courts getting involved in yep, the second absolutely. guessing business. And so he's he's willing to go this one step into the pool, but not, that no is further. where the homework's not been done by the agency, right. and it's just a naked lie. He's not willing to go further and say, well, look, even when you've done the work, we're still going to second guess and, and possibly. And this is why the DACA case has now become hugely important because, I mean, it's not just that there are 700,000 people who are directly affected by the DACA cases. It's that, like, so which side of the, you know, is DACA travel ban two point or yeah. whatever? Or is, or is DACA census? Do you have a sense of the record, whether it's sort of exposed as entirely pretextual in this way? Or? So I, I don't know that it's quite as bad, but here's the thing about DACA, right? The It's quite clear from the record that the administration proffered this you know, we're rescinding it because we think it's illegal justification because they didn't want the political hit of doing it voluntarily, right? That they, they wanted to, they really wanted to be able to say the courts are making us rescind DACA. It's not our fault. And, you know, so, so in some sense, it's actually an even stronger case, Bobby, because their whole, their whole approach depends upon one legal assertion that turns out to be incorrect, Right. But I don't know. I mean, it's messy, and I think that's part of why you know the DACA case has now become among the most important cases the court's going to hear next term. Well, so for our purposes, it's yes, DACA is important. But the reason why I think we're most interested in this is what it implicates for the border wall, yep. where it's a purported national security justification in part, and this is also true for the tariff litigation, which continues to turn along. True. All the ones where it's a claim of national security interest. Right. Where's the line? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and 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 I think what we take away here is. Uh, the chief justice is willing to provide a fifth vote for extreme cases of pretext. Don't think that this means he's going to turn around and provide a fifth vote for ones where, it, like in travel ban, where the agency has gone through more trouble. Or the, trans- more or the, tra- the, or the transgender ban, right? But, right, yeah, same same there. But here's the problem, right? The chief will know where he wants to draw the line. But how are lower courts supposed like, – so now lower courts basically have to get into his head to figure out where the line is between I, too I, much – you know, too obvious a pretext and no, I, I close enough a pretext. I think, I think that he's drawing a line that, of course, there's ambiguity on the boundaries of it. But I think that's true for all sorts of doctrinal lines. It's no different here than in loads of other contexts. I don't think this is sort of a, God, who knows what this even means? I think it means what it says, where there's, where there's um, a lack of an administrative record to support what's going on. And when you have sort of smoking gun documentation that shows that somebody just had a political interest they were advancing, that'll be one thing. But where, like with Travel Band, where DHS gets its act together and produces some form of substantive record to back up the otherwise permissible justification, yes, there will be boundary cases people fight over, but I don't think it's so far off the rails in terms of leaving the courts to guess. Um, well, that's, that's a pot that will continue to boil for us. Anything else on SCOTUS before we move along? A lot, but I think, you know, I mean, there's there's a lot of other interesting stuff that happened at the end of last week, but I think we can we can say some of it for when the cases come back in the fall. It's, okay. I mean, all I'll say is, you know, if the story of this term was sort of the awkward transition to a new court and, you know, trying to put off some of the big, heady stuff um, until there was more, you know, more time. Um, it's next, coming next year? I mean, I you know, it, I understand why the chief wanted to try to keep his and the court's head down this term. But in exchange, we're going to have a ton of immensely important cases decided right in the middle of the 2020 election cycle. Oh, so, good times. Wait, so quick preview. So yeah. DACA, what, what else is sort of like 
politically impactful. Um, Title seven uh, and sexual orientation and transgender, um, which I think is a huge <laughs> deal. I think that that might that might indeed affect elections. Um, I think there will probably be a major abortion case by the time you know that the court... indeed might affect the right. election. So yeah. you know, I, I mean, I you know, the court is sort of. So the chief has uh, his job of managing the court's political capital and trying to yeah. minimize the spotlight on the court. Well, I think, I think we should say, and I think what we're seeing is in, in lots of different respects and across a number of different cases, what the court looks like with a solid, right, five justice majority in at least most of the, you know, politically divisive hot button cases. I I guess, but I feel like what we just talked about with the census was showing you that the, the majority is not solidly conservative with, because, yeah, because one it, exception, one exception. Okay, but the the you know one instance we're talking about a series of instances, and yeah. there's a huge one. The yeah. census of all things, this thing. I mean, that that decision Roberts made, at the impact over the next ten years could be titanic, and yet will pale in comparison to the impact of his majority opinion for a five four court in the partisan gerrymandering case. Maybe you say that, but the, by your own account, the census effort that the Commerce Department and the Trump administration yeah, yeah. were undertaking was potentially going to set the table in ways yeah, no, that would so have it's, it's just, you know, it's, I would say, equally dramatic impacts I, as to the gerrymandering. Respectfully, I disagree. I mean, so so the worst case scenario for the census, which I actually thought was a real possibility, was substantial undercounting right, of immigrant populations in states like Texas and California. And so you'd have a handful of states that lost out on their full entitlement to House representation and that lost out on their full entitlement to federal benefits. Contrast that with partisan gerrymandering, where, you know, you now have, I mean, uh, Texas is a great example where we live. Like, Travis County went 75-25 for Beto in the 2018 election, and yet we're cut across six congressional districts, one of which, you know, is represented by Democrats. There's no question that gerrymandering, you've heard me say this before, gerrymandering is one of the the great evils of, of our system, one of the that and career politicians. But it's not just about representation. I mean, so, and this is just the last point I want to make and I'll shut up, right? Um, Partisan gerrymandering is not just bad for diluting individuals' representativeness in the House, right? It's really bad for polarizing the House because when legislatures create safe oh, districts. Completely, no. Like when right? I say All that, you have to do is win the primary. Could, you, you know I feel this way. Yeah. When I say that gerrymanders, gerrymandering is one of the great evils yeah. of our time, I say this is someone who really bemoans the fact that because of it, it's only the primaries that end up mattering in most districts. And if that's the case, then you end up with this uh, barbell effect where everyone on both sides kind of goes to whatever the relevant ideological extremes are. And that's one of the curses we've got. Yep. Um, well, I kind of stand by my view that the the seemingly or, or supposedly you know uniform block five vote conservative majority is is proving in some major cases, including two that we talked about today, uh, not to be uniform at all. Although it's clear it has a center of gravity, but no no doubt you're right that next term is going to be huge. Everything gets magnified by the effect of the election. This won't be good for the court. No, it won't be helpful for no. how it goes about its rulings. No, nope. uh, or how the public understands what the court does. Yep. Um, speaking of things that uh, come up periodically, let's pivot over to the going dark debate. Uh, friends, let me remind you that this is maybe more familiar to you as Apple v. FBI. That's a good shorthand for it. This is uh, a, a term, going dark, that gestures towards the slew of technological developments that from the law enforcement perspective in particular, law enforcement officials will say that um, there's a, a trove of information, either information in motion or often at rest on a device uh, that we can't access because of the growing ubiquity of, of encryption that the uh, the government can't 
break, or at least can't easily break, or perhaps the relevant part of the government that can break it is not the part that has the phone. This is, it, you know, it's the local sheriff's office. It's the FBI in a circumstance where maybe NSA could break it, but FBI can't. All these different scenarios where there's information that maybe indisputably would be worth checking out, might even be really, really dispositive information, but they can't get it. Um, so there's an interest in trying to perhaps have legislation to prevent manufacturers of software, of hardware, uh, from having solutions that the manufacturers themselves can't, in response to a properly issued warrant, even then, if the manufacturers set things up in ways that they can't decrypt it, then everyone's out of luck. The government's talked a lot. There's been a lot of whispering about maybe there should be legislation to prevent companies who are selling products in the United States from having that approach, uh, similar to how with the Communications Assistance to Law Enforcement Act, CALEA, we have long had a rule for the telecom system that whatever else they do in designing their systems, they have to be able to execute uh, wiretaps uh, when a court lawfully orders one. Um, this has not surprisingly been met with fierce pushback from a variety of communities, from industry, from the privacy community, obviously, uh, saying, you know, don't break encryption. If you if you force through legislation, if you force companies to create these, these back doors or front doors, as the government prefers to call them, um, then everybody will be less secure overall. You're just mandating vulnerability. It's the last thing we need, et cetera. Um, there was a report uh, recently, Eric Geller at Politico reported that the National Security Council Deputies Committee, which hasn't been meeting as often under uh, John Bolton's tenure as it used to, uh, had actually met recently with Going Dark and what to do on their agenda. That got a lot of hands ringing. Um, I think it's fair to say that there's, uh, from what I saw, the follow-up reporting with, with Eric and Dustin Voles from Wall Street Journal, um, sounds like no determinations, no conclusions or decisions were reached at that meeting. And anyways, there's no reason to think Congress has any more appetite for it now than they did at sort of the last heyday, the high watermark post-Apple v. FBI, when FBI and, and Jim Comey were pushing for Congress to engage on this or, or to consider engaging on this. And it became clear that Congress is pretty divided on it, doesn't have a lot of appetite for it, in part because uh, no one has yet been able to articulate a clear vision of what a reasonable compromise bill would look like in strict technical terms, what the technical solution would be. And so until, until someone comes up with a persuasive case there, it doesn't look like the United States, at least, is going to go that direction. Uh, whether other countries might do it and whether they might sort of pave the way and then set a, set a model the United States then emulates, and here's looking at you, Australia, um, hmm. you know, we'll see. Uh, and similarly, Dustin, again, Dustin Voles of Wall Street Journal and Ellen Nakashima at The Washington Post uh, also recently both reported on a development with NSA and its ongoing uh, access to phone metadata through the USA Freedom Act. Uh, listeners will recall that this is all about the uh, formerly based on Section 215 authority to compel third party companies to provide uh, data that's relevant for terrorism-related investigations, and under that heading for a long time, surreptitiously until like the public didn't know that Congress was in some ways informed, in other ways not informed. Uh, the public didn't know until Snowden that this was going on, that there was a giant haystack of telephone records of who called who, call data records. Um, the idea was to have this on hand in the event that there's a terrorism suspect who's identified later, and you want to have that historical inquiry into who were they calling, who were they in touch with, what was their what was their network of contacts. That haystack and contact chaining idea 
uh, at best has been controversial, at worst has caused people you know intense outrage. Congress's intervention a couple of years back was to modify, sort of mend it, don't end it. They didn't get rid of this capacity. What they did instead was to end the ability of the government to pull the data uh, kind of wholesale into NSA, where it could be compiled into a single database and then queried when appropriate uh, in NSA's judgment. Instead, what happens now is all the phone companies have to each preserve their own network or their own haystack of data from their own networks for a certain period of time. And then when NSA wants it queried in a terrorism investigation case, um, you go to the FISA court, you make a showing that this is reasonably relevant to investigation, um, and then you then you notify each company, say, hey, here's, here's the seed number, please run a contact chain and produce the results uh, for that number. And uh, quite a while back, we learned that there was a technical compliance problem, not at NSA, but at at least one of the telecom companies, where for whatever reason, they were sending back to NSA in response to proper court-approved requests, they were sending back more than they should have, information, call data records that NSA should not have been receiving. Um, the most recent story from Dustin and Ellen both indicates that uh, there was a particular instance that was in that same period that was not previously known, but of a like kind, same story, more particulars, um, and that it apparently was information conveyed in, on October 3rd, 2018. And NSA itself spotted this, I think within nine days, uh, suspended all acquisition of information under this program from that provider and got rid of that information. Um, and so here's what I see happening. I see a lot of people online pointing to this and saying, you know, ah, further evidence that this doesn't work, NSA can't be trusted. I take the opposite view. I say further evidence that when inevitable compliance problems come up, NSA can be trusted to flag it and err on the privacy protective side. And it seems to me that this is an example of a compliance system and safeguards working. And uh, I'm curious whether you take it the same way or if perhaps you think, nah, this is just more evidence that they just can't get this stuff to work right. So time to time to land yes. the plane. How about yes? Is it? Did I predict you right? Yes. Yes. Um, the reason, no, no, of course, no, is... No, it's, man, a it's a combination of both, right? I mean, that okay. things partly working the way they should, but also like, wait a second, if this is how we got there, <laughs> what are we doing? Yeah, well, so it's tempting to think that uh, it doesn't really matter. That's just all grist for the mill. But there's a sunset on Section 215 authorities and the USA Freedom Act component at the end of this year. Uh, and there's there's ongoing doubt about whether the administration is going to push hard for renewal here, either in whole or in part. So watch this space. But there's no doubt that every time a story like this lands, even if somebody like me hears it and thinks, oh, I don't know, that that's compliance mechanisms doing their thing. Um, the reality is that for, I think, a larger number of people, it just kind of goes down as another instance where all they really heard was compliance problem, right. compliance problem, yep. compliance problem. All right. Uh, On that happy note. Yeah. Do you want to say anything about North Korea? Uh, what is there to say? I mean, it's it's, it's the perfect it's the perfect um, microcosm of Trump administration foreign policy, where he wants the picture, right? Like being able to take the picture of him setting foot in North Korea 
is so much more important than, I don't know, accomplishing anything <laughs> and lying about, like, like blatantly lying about the Obama administration's refusal. Not like, like he couldn't get a meeting with Kim Jong-un. He didn't want a freaking meeting with Kim Jong-un because he understood that like you lend credibility and legitimacy to a tin pot dictator when you do that. So I, I think that obviously on that point, that's right. You can't mischaracterize what actually happened. And it's, well, he did. It, Right. When and I say like, when I say can't, I don't mean he physically can't. No, but no, I but, meant you shouldn't. But then you had but, media outlets like The Hill just like quoting him without putting out the the brazen lie, right, baked into the quote. Anyway, sorry. So you you shouldn't do that. Um, <laughs> I do think that it's it's fair and interesting to ask whether at some point this relentless like you know positivity towards this horrible dictator is it possible that at some point it might actually yield something that's productive? I. I don't want to write that off because I do. It remains I, to be I seen. I do think it is not an entirely bad thing to try outside the box solutions on a issue as fraught as North Korea that has been stuck for so long, with North Korea pretty relentlessly proceeding with their program. That said, I'm very, very doubtful. I'll go on record here saying I think there's almost no chance that whether his term ends shortly or after another term, that he has anything concrete to show. Other than like, there hasn't been violence between the United States and North Korea uh, at, at a large scale. Although I would say, but see Otto Wambier, or uh, is that his name? The the mm-hmm. poor kid who was tortured to death basically by the North Koreans. Um, so there is some amount of violence taking place, but. I, I'm doubtful Trump's going to deliver anything out of this relationship he's building. But if he pulls the rabbit out of a hat, well, you know, I don't want to discourage him from from anything that might be along those lines. All right, it would be a first. It would be something. All right, uh, should we should we turn away from such a, a sad and and frankly not legal topic and and turn to something else not legal but that's not sad? Free agency in yeah. the NBA. I suspect that for those who don't like when our frivolity is sports ball, you're really not going to like today's frivolity. You know, I'm sure that some of our sports enthusiast fans don't like it when our frivolity is musicals and uh, in theater. So uh, we well, got they're, a little they're, bit they're, for well, everybody. They're, they're, just we can about, they're just wrong about that. Well, we can we can annoy everybody. <laughs> um, so what what do you want to say about the Knicks and the, the what, fiasco what, that was, what has been there? What is there to say about the Knicks? Um, so, you know, this is the great question. I mean, of course the Knicks were going to be the Knicks. And not only not sign either Kyrie or Kevin Durant, but actually have Brooklyn sign him. <laughs> By the way, I heard someone this morning saying, the city of Brooklyn. I'm like, no. The right? city. The Brooklyn, borough. Brooklyn, Brooklyn used to be a city until 1898, and then it merged with New York City. And be, right, I mean, like, so Brooklyn chose to not be a city. Like, let's just be clear on our history here, everybody. All right, so why, why is everybody – break it down for me, man. Why is everybody so willing to go play for the Nets of all teams Because they want to be the a, Knicks? Because they want to be in New York, and they don't want to play for the Knicks. And so, you know. But, but, but why? That, so that's the why. Because the Knicks are toxic. Because the Knicks have, like, just about – I mean, I, it's a competition between James Dolan and Daniel Snyder for who's, like, the worst owner in professional sports. That's what I want to guess. So what is it about Dolan that sucks so bad that it's the, the market is responding this way? So, one, right, it's a hostile work environment. Two, he creates, you know – 
like no one actually wants to work there, right? Um, he undermines the people who were from Phil Jackson couldn't succeed there. Pat, like, I mean, you know, people who have done great things elsewhere come to New York and die because the market is so toxic and the ownership of MSG is so involved in that toxicity. So you, can, you can make it anywhere, but you can't make it there. Basically. Um, like well, well done. Yeah, thanks. Um, and I, I mean, and I got to say, I mean, listen, I, I have a personal stake in this, right? I mean, my aunt, right, successfully sued James Dolan and MSG for the massive, you know, sexual harassment cover-up with regard to Isaiah Thomas and Anne Anuka Brown-Sanders. Yeah. You know, so, I, when I was a clerk, I saw her try a case. She tried a case in front of Judge Kaplan. Uh, that was a she was she was really good. She's really good. Um, um, not surprised she won. Um, and actually, just a quick anecdote about that. I believe that was the case where uh, the defense was doing their peremptory strikes, and there was a guy in the jury pool who was like the name partner for a, a plaintiff's firm that did aircraft litigation, like air, aircraft crash and, and disaster litigation. And they can, and it was clear they were considering striking the guy, and they didn't. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, because he then became the foreman of the jury. And we actually got to go in and talk to the jury afterwards. Oh, and cool. He himself said, like, I can't believe they didn't strike me. Um, anyways, uh, so the Knicks, back to why they stink. Um, so basically, you've got this organization that's proven that over time, as long as the current owners are in place, and that's the least likely to change is the ownership player, and the same, right? Same with the, and the same with the Mets, right? This They're going to drive bad decision-making right. down and through the organization. And the same with the Mets. I mean, this is why, like, this is why I'm, I tend to be less hard on the Giants because I actually find the ownership structure, the Maras and that whole crew, yeah. more responsible as an ownership structure than the Wilpons and the and and James Dolan. Like it's like, you know, I am cursed to to root for teams with absolutely terrible management. And so it's just like, you know, it's interesting to compare this to the Cowboys yeah. with you know, infamously Jerry Jones Indeed. all these years uh uh controlling it um it was such a problem not for making money they've done great at that but for actually winning such a problem for so long once you got past the early years um but as his son stephen jones has sort of taken over uh, more and more of the football operations they've actually had this you know pretty substantial resurgence they're still not what they used to be but you can have change within a family-owned structure but basically it has to have that kind of secession and i don't see that happening for the knicks um, who do you, who are the biggest winners then? I actually don't think the net like the Nets are only the winners relative to the Knicks. Right. I don't actually think these deals are quite as you know. I don't think the Nets are the team of the future remotely as much as it seems like sports. So, you know, here, so, so here's is, the thing, right? The Nets in New York, so much of it is winning the headlines. Yeah, right? and the yeah. Nets won that. Yeah. Um, I think the how good a deal, how good this works out, really depends on whether Kevin Durant comes back at. 90% of his former self, 80% or so. I mean, there's yeah. there's research out there that, like, you know, players are never the same after recovering from a torn Achilles. It is rare. There's I've seen some examples. I can't recall off the top of my head, but I know somebody cited a good example the other day, but it was sort of the exception, right. not the rule. And, the, and that the norm is actually, like, you're not the same. No, you, just don't, um, you just can't generate the same. So, you know, I mean, obviously the Nets are taking a flyer on this year. Like, they'll be a playoff team, but not a very good no. playoff team. Um, you know, Kyrie is such a, you know, compl- clubhouse complicating factor. Uh-huh. And what the question isn't how good is he in general. It's, well, how much better is he than D'Angelo Russell, well, if so, at all, so, going so the, forward? Right. So this is where we get to. So I, I think the unquestioned winners of the early free agent news, because there's still a Kawhi yeah. out there. <laughs> but but the, the, the to my mind, the absolute clear winner so far are the Golden State Warriors. Agreed. I'm totally with because, you on that. And that's because, not the narrative that's out there. But no, that's right. because they totally, first of all, they snuck in, right, and got D'Angelo Russell, which, you know, and the Nets were like, yeah, we don't, we, we have no, yeah. we have no, we, we can't do, um, which not only makes, makes a lot of sense for what they're going to look like now without Durant, mm-hmm. 
and create and create. You know, I mean, imagine you're Steph Curry or Clay Thompson, and you have someone else who can handle the ball. Like, yeah. I mean, hello. No, it's, this was the best news Steph Curry could right. possibly have gotten. Right. But Clay Thompson, if he comes, it's the same question with him. Does he come back? But that's an ACL. And how so, quickly? So, so I, as as someone who has recovered from two ACL injuries, yeah, same um, here. Same um, here. The ACL, you can be 100% after an ACL, right? Yeah. There's not nearly the same sort of doubt about the ACL as there's about Achilles. I'm not worried about Clay. Yeah. Um, I mean, it'll probably be the middle of next season before he's back. Right, but you know what's funny? Like, they just need to hold it together during the season to make the playoffs, and then suddenly you may have a finely gel, like a, a fresh... 100% Clay Thompson at the time of the right. playoffs. A younger, right, D'Angelo Russell, who's younger than all of them, uh-huh. right? I mean, like, you know, mm-hmm. who can be the engine. And then all Steph has to do is, you know, take over when they need him. No, um, I, I think that people so, should not count that. So out. not only is that a great move, and not only is trading Iguodala to the Grizzlies, I think, a really, like, a long-term savvy move. Because I think Iguodala, yeah. as, he's a great glue guy, but he's old. Yeah, um, and they but, got a good pick out of him. But, right, they stuck it to the Lakers. Because yes. the Lakers apparently were totally convinced that they were going to get D'Angelo Russell. And now yeah. it's like, ha ha, fooled you. And the Lakers may not get Kawhi. So where's Kawhi going to land? And what would you do if you were Kawhi? If I, I've said this already. If I'm Kawhi, I stay in Toronto. Yeah. Like but I think, you know, I think he might do a one-year deal. In Toronto? Yeah, because he could do a one-year deal and then opt out next year once he sees sort of what's happening. Like, is LeBron still got it? Uh, does he maybe want to be in L.A.? Are the Clippers going to pull together enough other pieces? So here's a, the problem is, if I'm Kawhi, like, I want to be in L.A., but do I really want to be on the Clippers? Because, like, you know, it's quite clear, uh, back to the battle of the headlines, right? Like, you know, the, the Knicks now are totally the also-ran to the Nets, right? I mean... Even if Kawhi's on the Clippers, you know, the Lakers have LeBron, they have Anthony Davis. I mean, you know. I, I, I think if LeBron goes, I'm sorry, if Kawhi goes to the Clippers, then you've got some, because the, the, the Lakers are so short of other pieces, whereas the Clippers have a little more well-roundedness to what's left of their roster. I think you could argue that the Clippers and Lakers, both playoff teams, both pretty even, both capable of contending. Um, you're going to have actually Utah looking as good as anybody in yeah. the West. Yeah. Um, you could argue actually the Utah was the big winner uh, yesterday. So Yeah, but they still can't compete with the Warriors. I, you know, I don't know. I think the Warriors are going to be down a notch, but as I just argued, I think they'll be in there. It's going to be wide open field. The The Rockets are no better, arguably a little bit worse right. now. They've, I mean, who's the favorite in the East right now, though? Like, like I, I think, like, at least so yeah. far, we haven't seen a cataclysmic rearranging of power in the West. If, but if, if, Kawhi, if Kawhi, leaves, Kawhi leaves, then the Bucks have got to be the favorites, right? I guess, although they lost Chris Middle, no, uh, they lost uh, Malcolm Brogdon. Yeah. Um, right, Brogdon left to, yeah. to go somewhere. You know, the Bucks probably. I mean, the Celtics picked up um, Kemba Walker, so maybe yeah, the that, Celtics. If it, so the question is, will their clubhouse chemistry right. be better uh, without snap, Kyrie? Without Kyrie and, and Kemba, I mean, and I think and, Kemba's, you know, Kemba's actually Kemba's a big. I think plus. he's about the most undervalued like all star in the NBA. No, it's because he's been laboring in obscurity in, in Charlotte, Charlotte, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, Good job, Michael Jordan. Speaking yeah, of somehow the Spurs got that guy. Um, you know, it makes me so sad. Like nowhere is there a whisper of the Spurs. In I was going to say I haven't just, heard. I haven't heard the Spurs well, mentioned once. So the the way to think about it from the Spurs perspective is they picked up an amazing talent, but he was already on their team. Is just out for the year. Dejounte Murray's back. Mm-hmm. Dejounte Murray is going to be an All Star next year. You hear, heard it here first. He's going to be great. The Spurs will be better next year than they were this year by sleeping on him. They'll have as much chance to compete. I'm not saying they're going to go all the way, but they're going to be better next year. They're going to get out of the first round for sure. Ooh, that's, big words, Bobby. Yeah, well, it's, it's that's like the least aggressive prediction I've made for them for 20 years. Fair, so. fair enough. Um, I just, I, you know, I, I think, I mean, I, so I think I want to see where Kawhi is up because I think that's going to have a lot to say about sort of a full assessment of all of this. Yeah. All I have to, so on the next point, just one last thing. Like I'm actually, I think the hardest thing, and this is probably where we should stop. Like I'm not sure 
it would have made sense for the Knicks to throw $160 million at Durant. Like, I understand, yeah. like, there's clamor for the franchise to do something big, right. but is, you know, a t- is a max contract for a guy who won't dress up once next year and you have no idea what he's going to be like? So, you know, James Dolan issued a statement like, we just weren't, you know, we weren't prepared to offer him a max. And it's like, I actually, in a perfect world, I would totally understand that. Yeah. But then you have to have a plan B. Yeah, you and, can't just be like, so we ended up doing nothing after clearing all that right. space. So instead, we overpaid for Julius Randle. That's our, our marquee. We, we have all this cap space, right? We, we got rid of everyone you've ever heard of. Print the posters. And and Julius Randle is who, like, so it's not that it's not that I'm averse to avoiding Durant. Like, I, I totally understand the argument for that. But then, like... Julius Randle can't be Plan B. Yeah, I hear you. No, it it makes me laugh. It really does. It makes me cry because, like, I mean, I just who am I supposed to root for anymore? I know, Spurs! I know, I know, I know, I know, Spurs, but no, but no, but no. I know. One day, one day. All right. So listen up, everybody. So we are taking a, a hiatus because we are our schedules are mismatched over the next two weeks, and we're not going to be in the same place again until I think the seventeenth. So we're off next week, but so, we're so back chill out on midweek the news. following. Yeah, no news. No news, please. Um, but, but you can follow us on Twitter in the meantime. You we'll can follow us on Twitter. Stop there. And you have some homework, right, which is to watch The Pegasus from Season, Star- seven, season 7, Episode 12, is Star 12? Trek The Next Generation. Ah, uh, you looked. Um, watch The Pegasus. Um, well, I had to watch it. <laughs> send us your questions or your thoughts, things you want us to talk about. Um, obviously, we'll have some views on, you know, just how much, uh, you know, is Admiral Pressman right that the Treaty of Algeron was a relic that was keeping the Federation back? And was Flowers for Algeron a good book? <laughs> I vote yes. All right, everybody. So um, on that note, happy July 4th. Stay safe Woo-hoo. out there. Adios.